Hello, my name is Devin DeJesus, and I am a junior at Booker High School. Our scripture passage for today comes from the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, beginning with the first verse. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove upon him. And a voice came from the heavens, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Sarah, and I am Devin's aunt. One of my most um, honored and privileged roles in my life. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, may the word just read point to the word to come. May it all work together to point to the word made flesh, your son, our Lord Jesus. Amen. So in October of 2006, 20-year-old Matt Swatzel was driving home from a 24-hour shift as a firefighter and an EMS. He talked to his mom on the way home and one of his friends, and they talked about what they would be doing that afternoon. And he felt fine. He didn't feel particularly tired. But then he nodded off. He nodded off just for a second, only a second. But it was long enough for him to pass the yellow line and to hit the car being driven by pregnant June Fitzgerald with her 19-month-old daughter Faith in the back seat. Matt was less than four miles from his home when the accident happened, and the sound of it, it woke him up. He describes it as the worst sound that he had ever heard. Little Faith survived, but June and her unborn son did not. And Matt, Matt was just crippled with guilt. Here he was, a helper, and yet he had caused this terrible, terrible accident. He wondered, how can you be forgiven for something like this? How could he forgive himself? Is this forgivable? I imagine every person here has felt guilt or shame or regret. It's something we, we hold in common we feel regret for the things we've said or not said, the time we raised our voice, the time we withheld love or forgiveness. We regret our fragmented attention and our neglect of ourselves and others. We regret not dedicating more time to God in prayer and in study. 
We regret lying and stealing, breaking promises. We regret all kinds of decisions we know cause us harm or harm to others, the drinking, the drugs, the sex, the eating, the countless hours, countless hours, wasted watching nonsense on Netflix. Yes, as human beings, we all understand guilt and regret. We struggle with forgiving ourselves, with accepting that we are forgivable. I shared with you all a few months ago that my dad was an alcoholic. He died seven, I realized, almost eight years ago now. What I didn't share then and what I hadn't articulated to anyone until I wrote this sermon was the deep shame and guilt I felt about his last visit with me. He was visiting and he was drinking and I just I couldn't have it in my house and I was busy with work and I was just really tired from all of the years of my family sort of managing and struggling with his addiction. And so I told him he had to go home. I said, change your ticket. You need to go home immediately. I don't think I spoke to him much on that long drive to Fort Lauderdale where he would leave the next day. And I remember going to bed that night and being just silent. You know, silent in a way that must have really hurt him, you know, deeply. And he left before I was awake. And it was the last time I saw him. And I'm so, so sorry. I'm sorry I didn't speak words of love and forgiveness to him before he left. I'm sorry I didn't hug him one more time. I'm sorry I wasn't kinder. Over the years, I've had to struggle with how can I forgive myself? Is this forgivable? And I don't think I've ever openly shared this shame and this guilt and this omission on my part. It's not particularly surprising. More often than not, I think we suffer our shame and our guilt alone. We, we serve as our own judge and jury, and we convict ourselves over and over again. We can feel utterly isolated by our mistakes, and it can start to control our entire narrative of who we are. We can construct whole identities out of our mistakes, imprisoning ourselves to the past. If we're not careful, we can begin to think we are the things we regret. What we forget and what we need to be reminded of is that we are not alone in our guilt and our regret, that Jesus is with us in it all, even the worst things we have done. God's love for us, his love for you and me, that love precedes even our repentance. We are never alone in our guilt and regret. We are not alone in our mess. For Mark, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ takes place in the wilderness with this strange kind of wild-haired man calling for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. And since it was as true then as it is today that people knew guilt, that they knew regret, the people came. People who'd lied or cheated, people who'd hurt themselves or others, people who had simply fall in short of the way God would have us live. And there they submitted themselves to John and they confessed their sins. It all kind of seems like a pretty sad picture. Crowds of desperate people weeping and wailing knee-deep in the murky waters of the Jordan, crying out for forgiveness. But it's not a sad story, because the good news is they weren't there alone. 
The good news of Jesus Christ begins with Jesus quietly entering the muddy waters right alongside them. For Mark, there's no star, there's no angels appearing, there's no kings traveling from afar to honor a newborn king at the beginning of the story. There is just Jesus side by side with the broken people of Jerusalem and Judea. There in the muck and dirt of a riverbank crowded with self-professed sinners is Emmanuel, God with us. And though he was without sin, Jesus enters the River Jordan and he holds his nose and he plunges into the brown water, the muddy mess of our sin. Jesus' baptism is an astonishing, visceral demonstration of God's solidarity with all people. And it tells us unequivocally that there's no water too wide or too deep or too dangerous for Jesus not to be there right beside us. Jesus is with us. And when he comes out of the water, God is so overcome with love for his son and love for the world that the veil of heaven is torn open. It's not just open. It's not like a velvet curtain slowly rising. It's torn with urgency. The urgency of this message that Jesus is God's son, the beloved, with whom God is well pleased. One translation, the common English Bible reads, You are my son who I dearly love. In you I find happiness. And the Holy Spirit rests upon Jesus in the form of a dove. A dove not unlike the dove that God sent to Noah as a sign of hope and a sign of God's enduring love. In the moment of Jesus' baptism, the love between heaven and earth is made clear. And friends, believe this, all of creation is caught up in that great love. Karl Barth wrote that God's claiming Jesus at the time of his baptism summarizes the essence of the whole gospel. The astonishing, astonishing claim that God does not, will not remain in heaven hidden but descends instead to the depths of earthly life to be seen and heard by us. This is everything that into the wilderness of our own broken lives and our own regret and shame erupts the promise of a baptism to new life, a baptism of limitless mercy, a baptism of unending love. But this is so hard to accept that it's true, that it's meant for us, isn't it, for many of us? That we're dearly loved, that God finds happiness in us, that we are forgiven for it all, all of it. It's so hard to accept forgiveness for ourselves. I think in some ways it's infinitely harder to forgive ourselves than it is to forgive other people. It's hard to accept that the love and forgiveness of God is for us, for all of us, every single ugly, regrettable part of us, every word spoken or not, every injury, every bad decision. I think we sometimes doubt that such extravagant grace is possible. And even if it is possible, we, we assume it's not intended for us, not for me, Lord, not after what I've done. How can God forgive me for this terrible thing I've done? But God already has. 
God puts no limits on forgiveness. There is no small print, no sins excluded from God's love and grace. You know who puts limits on forgiveness? Martin Luther once said, it's not God, but the devil who throws our already forgiven sins in our face, rubbing our noses in them and saying, this is who you really are. You deserve suffering and condemnation and death. And when we listen to this voice, we're prone to believing the lie that if we've done something bad, we are something bad. But we aren't something bad. We aren't the worst things that we have done. What we really are is forgiven. Luther went on to say that when the devil says we deserve death and hell, we should say, and I'm paraphrasing here, I sure do deserve death and hell, but guess what? I know the one who loved us and suffered for us and gave everything for us. I know Jesus Christ and where he is, that's where I'll be. That's what I get. Forgiveness, grace, love, whether I deserve it or not. Matt Swatzel, who I told you about at the beginning of the sermon, Matt was racked with guilt, as you can imagine, after the accident that took the life of June and her baby, and he, he just didn't know how to handle it. It was swallowing him. He didn't know what to do, and so one night he says he gave it to God. He said, I'm giving this to you. This is bigger than me. And in that moment, he began to heal. He began to forgive himself. Not long after that night, God's healing forgiveness reached Matt through another human being. On the two-year anniversary of the accident, Matt went to Publix to get a card for Eric, who is uh, June's widow, and he was going back to his car to drive and drop the card at Eric's house when who did he see walking across the parking lot but Eric. When Eric tells the story, he says that as he approached Matt's truck, Matt was just weeping, just weeping, and the first thing Eric did was hug him. He just held him, and then Eric said, I forgive you. And then he put his arm on Matt's shoulder, and he said, Matt, don't let this define you. Don't let this be something that you can never get past. God has a plan for your life that is bigger than this one thing that you have done. And the veil of heaven, it ripped open right there over the public's parking lot. The two have gone on to be friends. They are like brothers. Matt looks after Faith, who is now a teenager, like she is one of his own children, and Matt has gone on to have children of his own. He is more than the worst thing he ever did. This photo here, this is Faith playing with Matt's children. Matt says he loves seeing Faith play with his boys. He says, and now it's our story together. It reminds me that there is grace and there is hope and there is good. Today, the church celebrates the baptism of Jesus. And it is an occasion, friends, when we get to remember our own baptism. We can understand our baptism to serve as a sign and a seal of what God has already done for us. What God began there in the muddy waters of the River Jordan when Jesus entered into solidarity with lost humanity. In baptism, we believe the water and its application to be a sign to which the promise of God is attached. And the promise is this, 
You are loved. You are forgiven. We can judge and condemn ourselves all we want. We can refuse to accept forgiveness, but we cannot prevent God from extending that love and that grace. Through our baptism, we are incorporated into our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is gracious whether we feel like we deserve it or not. We can renounce our identity as God's beloved children by refusing to accept forgiveness. But we cannot change our identity. We are what God created us to be. We are beloved. Archbishop Desmond Tutu told a story not unlike my own about his struggle to forgive himself. His father called him one night saying he wanted to talk, and Tutu was at the tail end of a really long trip. He'd driven for 10 hours that day, and he said, no, we have to talk tomorrow. But he awoke in the morning to the news that his father had died, and he was grief-stricken, and there was so much guilt, and he was never going to know what his father was going to say. But he prayed that God would help him forgive himself. And eventually he was able to forgive. He was able to arrive at a place of peace. Tutu writes, We need to forgive ourselves for the same reason we forgive others. It's how we become free from the past. It's how we move on and heal and grow. It's how we make meaning out of our suffering. Forgiving ourselves frees our energies to tell a new story of who we are. I have forgiven myself for the ways that I failed to love and honor my dad during his last visit. I know the story of who I am is bigger than my choices that day. My goodness, the story of our relationship is bigger than our choices that day. I have forgiven myself not by my own willpower or resolve, but by laying my regret at Jesus' feet, by asking Jesus to help me forgive myself. It's hard work. I I know it is. And maybe it's work that's never done. Maybe it's more cyclical than it is linear. Some days I pray, forgive me, Lord, for picking up again what I had already laid at your feet. It's hard work, and sometimes we have to accept forgiveness for ourselves over and over again. All I can say is that any grace I have accepted for myself has been the result of my praying, as Reverend Paul Tillich wrote, Lord, help me. Lord, help me to accept my acceptance. I've prayed to help me forgive myself any hurt that I've caused. Help me to understand that I am not the worst thing that I have done. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul writes that even though we're a mess, even though we follow our passions and our self-interest, even though we hurt ourselves and others, God is so rich in mercy and he loves us so much that we are forgiven. Even though we're as good as dead because of our sins, God gave us life when he rolled away that rock and raised Christ from the dead. God wants life for us. And Jesus is making all things new, even us, even the worst parts of us. And if God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, can forgive us, can forgive anything, who are we to hold a grudge? 
Friends, whatever you're currently beating yourself up about, whatever you're sure you've done or not done that is unforgivable, hear these words. Close your eyes if you're comfortable doing so. Hear these words. They are for you. They are from God. You are my daughter. You are my son. You are beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Let us pray. As a closing prayer, I offer you this blessing. It's written by a woman named Kate Bowler for when you can't love yourself. Blessed are we who say, God, can I borrow some of your mercy as I unfold to you the unloveliness within. And maybe as I hand it all over, I can borrow some of your gentleness and grace to use for myself to help me absorb some of these fleeting feelings of love so I can breathe freely in my own company. There is a buried secret there somewhere in my mind that I am more than worthy, somehow cherished in embarrassing detail. Then fine, I accept. Inhaling this love gives life to everything else. Amen.